Our text today is from uh, Genesis 1, verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And our next verse is from Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And our last passage is from 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 3. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We've been spending uh, last week and this week uh, focusing on uh, discipleship and its importance in our lives and in the lives of this church. Uh, last Last week, we had a guest preacher, Randy Pope, who is the founding pastor of our mother church, Perimeter Church, uh, and he uh, started us off. And this week, I'm excited to introduce you to Jeff Norris, who is the current lead pastor of Perimeter Church, and uh, he is uh, going to take us through the second part. Um, Jeff and I met, uh, we were in seminary together, and uh, he is a great guy, and he has a lot to show us. So, if you'll come up this morning, uh, Jeff, I'll pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Perimeter Church and their friendship and their guidance and their mentoring and all of the ways that they have blessed us over the years. We thank you for uh, discipleship, and we thank you for your word and the truth that we find in it. I pray, Lord, that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear as Jeff preaches this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brandon. I told the uh, early service that uh, I appreciate Ryan and Brandon and whoever else set this up to where I would be following Randy Pope yet again. Um, as if I haven't done that enough in my life, I'm joking. It is a privilege to follow Randy Pope. Um, and uh, yeah, I've been in the uh, seat of, of lead pastor at Perimeter now uh, almost, it'll be two years in September. I got about four months of normal back in the fall of 19 before the craziness of 2020 hit. And uh, it's been quite a year and a half of senior pastorate, but God has been faithful. It's been, it's been incredible, honestly, to see how uh, He has met us and sustained us and all of His people, not just at Perimeter, but you as well, uh, unto His glory. So super grateful for that. Randy started us uh, last week by talking about training disciples and he introduced three concepts, the, the grip and the posture and the alignment of discipleship. And he camped out on grip and really kind of thinking around this idea of our view of God. How do we rightly relate to God, view him, understand him? Because that is at the center of the beginning of training disciples. And so this week, I'll uh, I'll touch on the last two, the posture and alignment. But before we get into those two items, 
I want us to pull out, I want us to, to zoom out, if you will, and look at the whole of Scripture before we zoom back into posture and alignment. And I want us to think about purpose first. The purpose of humanity, yes, but as it plays into the purpose of discipleship. What is it that God is ultimately after in discipleship? What is it that we would be doing as, as making disciples to what end? What is the purpose? So that's where we'll be headed. Let me pray for us and we'll jump into that. Father, thanks for this time. Thanks for New City Church and all the ways in which you are uh, in significant, beautiful ways bringing your kingdom in and through this body to bless Lawrenceville and beyond. Lord, thanks for the ways in which um, you're at work in our lives, even now, this very moment. Lord, we trust that as we open your word, that it will indeed not return void, that you will press it deep into our hearts, and that you will teach us by your Holy Spirit. We give this time to you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I grew up in a small town in Alabama, northwest Alabama, not quite in Mississippi, not quite in Tennessee, and um, tucked up in the corner up there, but there was really nothing in the town I grew up in. If you wanted to go to a restaurant that wasn't fast food, if you wanted to go to the mall, uh, if you wanted to do anything of substance, you had to get out of Russellville. And you had to drive up about 30 minutes to this town called Florence that had all of those type things. Now, when you're leaving, going north out of Russellville, there was a house on the left. And as a little kid, I can remember all those many trips to Florence. I can remember looking at the house there on the side of the highway going north, and I thought it was a mansion. I thought it was so Huge, And the reason I thought that was because it had two large, tall pillars in the front of the house. And as a little boy, I thought, wow, that's a big house. Now, as I got older, the more that we traveled that road, the more I realized that's not that big of a house. It's actually a one-story ranch that had this facade on the front that had a pitched roof that made it look bigger than what it actually was. And the pillars made it look significant. But the older I got, the more I realized this is not a mansion at all. Now, when I was in high school, there was a house that was built in a new neighborhood in my town. This will tell you how small the town was that I grew up in. When a new neighborhood went up, it was the talk of the town. Everyone was like, oh my goodness, who's going to move into this new neighborhood? And I remember my dad talking about, should we, should we buy a lot? And in the middle of this neighborhood... The focal point was a true mansion. It was, it was right in the center to where when you came down the middle entrance of the neighborhood before it divided into two roads, you saw this house. And it was huge. And it had more than two pillars. Now, for the sake of the illustration, I'm going to say that it had five pillars, but it didn't. It had more than that. And if you had five, then there would probably be one right in front of your front door, and that wouldn't make any sense. So it was probably more like six or eight or ten. But uh, for this illustration, I'm going to say it had five pillars, and it was significant in size. Now, the reason I tell you this story is most of us, if you've grown up in church, around church, in Christian circles, you have probably most heard a two-pillar gospel, which is a good gospel. It's still good news. It is sufficient unto salvation. But what if there were actually, when we look at the whole of Scripture, when we look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, what if God is actually giving us a five-pillar gospel? 
a more robust understanding of the good news that he's been doing from the very beginning until the very end. Now, the two-pillar gospel is simply, but yet at the same time, very profoundly, that first, that we are sinners, separated from God because of our sin. And that's the first pillar. The second pillar is that we need a Savior. And that the only Savior for sin, the only one who can reconcile us to God, is Jesus. He's the one. By faith in Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone is the way into salvation. He is the only one that has dealt with our issue of sin, that has separated us and broken our relationship with God. Now, again, many of us, including myself, we came to faith on that two-pillar gospel. But as we begin to look at the purpose of why we exist and the purpose of what God has been doing from the very beginning, we realize there's more pillars to this story. Those are two of the pillars, but there's actually three more. And the first one is, as you might expect, creation. We, we have to start in Genesis 1 of the story of the gospel if we're going to understand the significance of the pillars that follow. And that first pillar is critical because we begin to understand what was it that God created in the beginning for his purpose for human flourishing, the purpose for mankind, the purpose for the world. And what we begin to see is that God created for us to glorify him and enjoy him forever. We are good as a Presbyterian church. We are good Westminster Confession of Faith people. We believe that with all of our hearts, that we are to glorify him and enjoy him forever. That he created all things to ultimately glorify him. And the pinnacle of his creation is mankind, man and woman, created in his image. Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our own image. That is a plural reference to the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, that is not let us referring to the angels or any other heavenly being because we're not made in the image of angels or seraphim or cherubim, cherubim or whatever else might be mentioned in Scripture of heavenly beings. We are made in the image of the triune God. And God has put his stamp on man and woman as you are the ones made in my likeness. But to what end? To what purpose? This is the key question we have to keep asking. Why? Well, he tells us partly, in part, he tells us just a couple of verses later. In one of the verses you just heard read, Genesis 1, 28, and God blessed them. That's significant. We'll come back to that. And God said to them, now here's what he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, this is significant because you may read that and go, okay, be fruitful and multiply. Have dominion over the earth, meaning we're more important than the fish and the, of the seas and the birds of the air. And okay, well, that's fine. I get all that. But there's something to this that we often miss. And here it is. What God is saying is what, what he's giving in this command, the very first thing that they hear from God that's recorded for us in the scriptures is a blessing in the form of a command. Now that's significant in and of itself because what that tells us is that there's actually flourishing. There's actually human flourishing in the commands of God. 
Now, we often miss that because we have, as good church people, we understand that the law was given ultimately to show us our sin, to show us that we can't do it, to condemn us, to expose that we are incapable of doing the law of God, of achieving the perfect standard of the law. But we often forget that it's actually in the law of God that God originally intended under his command for there to be flourishing. And he says, this is how you're going to flourish. You're going to image me in all the earth. You're going to reflect me in all the earth. What I want you to do as one's made in my image, in my likeness, is I want you to fill the earth with image bearers. I want you to fill the earth with those who are in my likeness. And here's the instructions that come with that. Subdue it. Reign over it. Have dominion over it. Which is to say this. Don't miss this. This is key. Be like me. God said. Be like me. What did God do in creation? He he created out of nothing. He took something void and purposeless, and he gave it purpose, and he gave it meaning, and he gave it beauty. And he did it in such a way to where he then gives it to us and says, do more of that. Genesis 2, God gives a command to Adam, and he says, work and keep the garden. Really interesting because sometimes we can feel as though work is a result of the fall. That work is a punishment of God. But we see here that God says, no, no, work is a good thing. Work is actually something that brings me glory that is pre-fall. And we have indication there in the Hebrew text that what that means is that God created the garden. We All we hear about is that the garden was beautiful, and it was. But have you ever heard that the garden was incomplete? God left it incomplete. He gave it to mankind to continue to nurture it so that it would flourish, to make it even more beautiful, to reign over it, to have dominion over it, and bring about its flourishing. That's part of why God created, is that he took the glory of what it means to be made in his image, and then he said, be like me, image me, mimic me in the earth. This is huge because, Genesis 3, the serpent comes along and he feeds a lie that we're still believing to this day. He got Eve and then ultimately Adam through this one lie, which is this. Ah, God didn't say you would die if you ate that fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. He didn't. You won't die. What's really going to happen if you eat of it is that you're going to actually be like God. That's Genesis 3.5. In exact words, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. You know what Eve should have said at that moment? What do you mean? Be like, we already are like God. What are you talking about? Get out of here, liar. But instead, she bought the lie and Adam with her that we still buy today. The serpent is still slithering into our hearts with the very same lie. God really doesn't have your best intentions in mind. God really, he knows that if you will ultimately give yourself to this, whatever this is, that in that you will actually find what you're really looking for that you will find something that he will not give you. 
or even deeper, that you'll find something in that that he can't give you. And so the lie that the serpent gave at the very beginning is the lie that we still believe. And here we are at the second pillar, the fall. That God created us that we would image him and have dominion over all the earth and reign like him in the earth unto his glory. And we bought the lie. And everything about the lie uh, has killed us. It's destroyed us. It's made us spiritually dead and it's broken everything about human reality. And it hasn't broken just everything about human reality. It's broken everything about life itself as it exists on the earth. Not just us, not only are man and woman, not only are we marred and fractured because of sin, but all of creation with it. Romans 8 says that all of creation groans for the day of redemption. There is a longing in the human heart for something better. There is, a, there is a subconscious admitting in a reality that we know this is not how it's supposed to be. And so what is the human experience on earth? Whether you know Jesus or not, what is this human uh, cry of the heart? Is that I long for something that is better. And the world around us right now, and it's always been this way, but maybe perhaps because of 2020 and into 21, we're seeing it more clearly than we have in the past. It's just one consummate cry for something better. And a crying of all kinds of expressions of this will give me what I long for, and this will give me what I long for. And if I just identify as this, that's really my true humanity. Or if I run after this, this will ultimately give me what actually God intended me to only find in him. And so there's the pillar of creation. There's the pillar of the fall that destroyed it all and threw us into chaos. But then there's the third pillar of redemption. The good news of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, that only in him is, yes, our, only in him is our sin dealt with. The penalty of sin, death itself, has been conquered through the resurrected Savior who, through faith in Him, we are now united to Him in His death and resurrection so that we now have power over the penalty of sin and one day even over the presence of sin. And as beautiful and as magnificent as that truth is that we will sing for all of eternity in the presence of the King, there's actually more to the story. Yes, he's dealt with our sin, and yes, through him, we now have been redeemed. But what is he redeeming? He's not just redeeming us from sin. He's redeeming us unto something. He's causing us to flourish again. We've gone, imagine that we were completely dead in the grave, seeds that have no sprout, and now he is making us not only into seeds with sprouts, but into trees that flourish. Psalm 1, oaks of righteousness, planted by the streams of living water. Christ himself, causing us to flourish again into the ways in which he originally created us to be. Why, why would Jesus say in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, who says, what is this whole thing that you're about? And he says, you've got to be born again. 
And Nicodemus goes, how do you enter again into your mother's womb? And he's not understanding that what Jesus is talking about is the same way that God birthed us out of creation in the beginning. He's rebirthing us now that we would be remade again into his image. This time remade, not just into the image of God, but specifically as we see in the New Testament over and over and over again, remade into the image of Christ, the firstborn over all creation. So this third pillar of redemption, yes, it's a, it's a redeeming of sin to cancel the penalty of sin and the power of sin and the presence of sin, but it's an igniting of a new life, of a flourishing reality for humanity that can only be found in the firstborn of creation himself, whom we are now united to, Jesus, who is king over all creation. It's a robust story of newness, of life, of imaging God as the one who reigns over it all. So what's our purpose now? Our purpose is just like the original purpose, to image him in all the earth. But he's given us more instruction on that. He's actually given us a new commandment. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Watch this teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even into the end of the earth, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. In our disciple-making efforts, what is it that we're doing? Are we just giving them a two-pillar gospel? Hey, you're a sinner and you need a savior? That's sufficient. It's good. Or are we giving them the five-pillar gospel, the robust reality of that what Jesus is doing in you is he's not just canceling your sin, he's giving you life and life abundantly to flourish in every way that you were originally created to. That the kingdom of God may flourish in us and through us. And then where does it end? Where's he headed with it all? Well, the next two pillars are really subsets of that third pillar of redemption. Secondly, or firstly, is the, the fourth pillar of restoration. I've already spoken a lot to that, but he's restoring newness of life in us and through us, not just to humanity, but to everything that we touch. Everything about who we are is now the kingdom flourishing of God through us, that all things would be made new. Colossians 1, why did Jesus came? come to make all things new? That as we are redeemed and being restored, we are an avenue through which his redemption and restoration is happening in all areas of life. In every arena and facet of our existence, we are seeking to bring newness of life centered around the glory of Jesus. In our work, in our recreation, in our families, in our relationships, in everything that we do, how are we bringing the flourishing of the kingdom of God? And that reality now is an already not yet reality. It's a taste of what's to come. And that points us to the fifth pillar. The, pi the fifth pillar of completion. One might call it consummation. When all things are consumed up into the final 
purpose of why we exist. And it's ultimately uh, going to be reality when Christ returns. When the king whom all things are centered around, the very one who brings newness of life, has fully brought that newness of life. Well, we will be glorified in our new bodies, our resurrected bodies with the resurrected Savior and all of His glory in the new heavens and in the new earth. And that new heavens and that new earth is a real physical reality. It's not just some ethereal thing up in the sky. When Christ returns, He's bringing the new Jerusalem to earth and He's renewing. He's making this whole ball that we live on new. And He's at the center of it all. All of it is pointing to Him. All of it is sustained by Him. And every single person who has believed upon Him is made new. And all of creation is made new. What started as a garden ends in a city. Revelation 22 gives us this beautiful picture of the city of God where everything is glorious. Centered on the glorious one. That's the five-pillar gospel. And that plays into the purpose of our discipleship. And really what you could say, what is the five-pillar gospel? What is it that we're talking about when we talk about from creation to completion? Well, what we're saying is what God's been about from the very beginning is he's been about kingdom flourishing. That the kingdom of God, as he originally created it to be, and is now being redeemed and restored through Jesus, would flourish in our lives. That as we know the King, as we've uh, given our lives and been rescued by Him, and as the King lives in us, that His kingdom would actually flow out of us in such a way that the purpose of God is taking root, which is to say that His kingdom is flourishing. So we could say this. We could say the purpose The purpose of discipleship, of making disciples of all nations, the purpose is so that kingdom flourishing would become a reality in every nook and cranny of the world. And as we talked about last week, as Randy mentioned last week, uh, what is discipleship? Discipleship is not just when we're sitting down one-on-one and I'm teaching you and you're listening or we're Bible study together. It's the preached word. It's happening right now. It's anything that we do where life is being shared in such a way to where the truth of God and who he is and his word is going forth into each other's lives. There's a multiplication factor to this that we'll speak about just in, in just a moment when we look at 2 Timothy That there is this process of realizing that as I pour my life into you, that you may turn around and pour your life into others as we make disciples, multiplying our lives into one another. Let me define for you briefly here what I mean by kingdom flourishing. Uh, The word in the Bible that is probably most getting at what we mean when we talk about the flourishing of God's kingdom is the word that in our Bibles, our English Bibles, in the Old and in the New Testament is most often translated peace. P-E-A-C-E, peace. Now, when we think of peace, we most often, in our English concept of peace, we only think of peace as the absence of conflict. Right? The opposite of battle, the opposite of war, of strife. But that would be like, the the meaning of the word that we translate peace in the Bible is is more robust than that. It's much thicker than that. It's weightier than that. In the the Old Testament, that that word is shalom. Uh, 
In the New Testament, in the Greek, that word is arene. And those words carry with them a thickness to them that the English language just doesn't quite translate. The the English language, uh, we have a dumbed-down language. I didn't call you dumb. I just said we have a dumbed-down language. Usually, a lot of times, it takes several English words to get at the meaning of an ancient word in the Hebrew or the Greek that has such weight to it. And this is one of those words. So when I say, if I say to you, well, peace is just the absence of conflict, that would be like, hey, let me show you a picture of my wife, Rachel. She's beautiful. I can't wait for you to see the picture. And I show you a picture, and it's of her arm. This is just zoomed in on her arm. And you go, what is this? I mean, that's Rachel. Uh, it looks like her arm, yeah. Isn't it great? She's got a beautiful arm. You go, well, there's got to be more to the picture. That's part of what's happening here. When we say that peace is only the absence of conflict, we're missing the rest of the picture. We're only looking at the arm of shalom. Because biblical shalom is really what it's getting at. It's getting at not just absence of conflict, but the presence of wholeness, completedness, fullness, to where we begin to see the rest of what God is getting at when he says, peace, shalom. There's the the fullness of who and what we were created to be. And so the word that might get at it best in the English is flourishing. Human flourishing. God is restoring us through Jesus that we may flourish in knowing him and that his kingdom may flourish going forward out of us, in us, and through us. So four things I'll give you quickly here that are kind of the... um, the inner workings, if you will, the substance of kingdom flourishing. Uh, One is right relationship with God. This is what we talked about last week with Randy. Right relationship with God, right view and understanding of who He is. It always starts there. We have to first and foremost be restored into right relationship with Him through faith in Christ. When that has happened, then secondly, the implications become right relationship with self. Meaning, we begin to understand through a right relationship with God who we are. We sang about this earlier. I am who you say I am. There's an identity piece in that, that we become secure in who we are. Made in the image of God, male and female. And all that comes with this, we begin to get emotional health because of a right relationship with self. We begin to get physical health as we begin to understand why God made us and why we exist in this tangible physical reality. So there's right relationship with self. By the way, each of these could be a sermon in and of themselves. So I apologize. I'm just mentioning them. Right relationship with others. As we understand our right right relationship with God and with ourselves, then we begin to understand what it means to serve and love others as Jesus did and does. There's a reorientation to how we approach one another in the way of Christ. And then lastly, a right relationship with the world that we move into the spaces of this world. I've already spoken to this. In all the arenas of life, whether it be cultural, whether it be in the systems that we create, whatever it may be, we are realizing that there is a work of God to be done, that flourishing may occur as we engage the world around us. This is often what we call Christian worldview. How we determine what is right and wrong. What do we do, what, how do we decide what God desires in this earth? But the purpose 
The purpose is kingdom flourishing. That's the purpose of our discipleship. What are we making disciples? Why are we making disciples? And what are we discipling, discipling them unto? Well, it's that the kingdom of God would flourish in, in them and through them. It's a five-pillar gospel. It's a robust Genesis to Revelation understanding of the story of God and my place in it and your place in it and what he's doing in the earth. But there has to be a posture with that. There's a grip, there's a purpose, there's a grip, there's a posture, and there's an alignment. There's a posture that has to be there. And we simply call this a perimeter. We call this the posture of radical dependence. That we are not seeking to make disciples in any shape, form, or fashion of our own accord, our own ability, or our own strength. This is not a grit-your-teeth endeavor. This is not, I'll just do my best at the gifts that God has given me and trust and hope that he'll make disciples through me. If disciples are going to be made in and through me, then it must come out of a posture of me recognizing daily that I can't do it. That I'm not the one who makes disciples. God is. Then in every way that if it's up to me to make disciples who make disciples mature mature and equipped, it will fail. There will be no fruit. That there must and will be a, a reality in my life that if disciples are going to be made and the kingdom of God is going to flourish in me and through me, then I have to believe with all my heart what Jesus said in John 15, that apart from him, I can do nothing. That it must be Christ in me, that in my weakness, his power is made perfect. That the kingdom of God comes through broken people radically dependent, depending on a sure and steady and powerful and merciful and gracious and loving and good God who lives in me and gives me everything I need for life and for faith, for fellowship and for ministry. You see this in 2 Timothy 2. When Paul is seeking to establish Timothy as a disciple maker, he doesn't start in verse 2 with the instruction of how you make a disciple. He starts in verse 1 with a posture. The posture is, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The grace that saved you, Timothy, is the grace that sustains you and strengthens you. And may you every day in this endeavor of walking with Jesus, may you be strengthened by that very grace. And then he gets into verse 2. So there's a multiplication process to this. What you've heard me from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will then teach others. Faithful men and women who will turn around and pour their lives in radical dependence out into the lives around them. Trusting that God will do what only he can in and through you into their lives. A big part of life on life, missional discipleship is caught, not taught. It's doing life together, spending time with one another. It's being in each other's presence while you spend time in the presence of God. Of course, there's a teaching element to that, as Paul hints to here. But it's not just that. It's engaging in radical dependence with each other that God would do what only he could do. But there's an alignment as well. And there's a lot that we can say about alignment, but just from this text alone, I want to, I want to zoom in on verse 3. 2 Timothy 2, verse 3 says this, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. I'll simply say this, 
for the sake of time, if we're going to be serious about the business of making disciples, if we're going to be serious about the business of being uh, citizens in the kingdom of God, that his flourishing may take root in us, then we have to embrace. It's not a question of if. It is an issue of certainty that we will and must embrace suffering. Some of you may go, look, man, I'm just looking for a discipleship group. I just, want to, I just want a small group. What are you talking about suffering? Well, the issue is not so much a discipleship group. It's the way of, of Christ is a way that is completely countercultural. In every way, it rubs against the way of the world, and it pulls us out of the rhythms of the way of the kingdom of this world and puts us steady into the stream of the rhythms of the way of the kingdom of God. And they are at odds with one another, which means at some level there will be suffering. Maybe it's just simply discomfort of choice. I would rather do this in my sin nature, but I'm going to choose this because I know it glorifies God. Maybe it's disillusionment with people around you who will not see and embrace the kingdom of God. Maybe it's discouragement because the more you try to live out the way of the kingdom of God that you and others may flourish, it's met with opposition. But maybe perhaps God's calling you into a life of suffering. Knowing that your suffering is accomplishing for you a glory that far surpasses them all when it's all complete when we're in glory, understanding we can suffer now for the life that is to come. If that's going to be true, if we're going to be disciple makers with the purpose of kingdom flourishing, there must be, there must be a proper understanding of who Jesus is and a supreme value a valuing of Jesus that surpasses everything else. I'll illustrate this, that, that truth this way. And I apologize, this will take me, I'm looking at my time up there, we'll go a little bit over, but I think the story's worth it. Our oldest, we have one boy and three girls. Our oldest, our son, he's, um, uh, he's adopted. We adopted him when he was three years old from Ukraine. And... Um, when we adopted him, we had to spend one month in country, uh, just all the paperwork and the various things that you had to do before we could take him home, which at first was a frustrating reality for us, but then ultimately it became a, a huge blessing because uh, it meant that we got to go every day to the orphanage to spend time with him, which helped us obviously become comfortable with him, but even more importantly, him with us, so that the day that we took him home, uh, he didn't freak out as, he freaked out, but not as much as he would have. Every day we'd go to the orphanage and he would want to, he always wanted to go to the playroom naturally. And so we'd go to this little playroom that was there. And if any of you know about adoption, you know that one of the big things is attachment, emotional attachment, and how important it is and how quickly that may or may not happen to where he is allowing, a, a child that's being adopted is allowing the new parents to love him to give and receive love in a healthy way. And sometimes that can be a, quite a battle. So you can understand why I was so surprised the very first day that we're in the orphanage with him, I am standing there and he comes up and grabs my hand. And as soon as he grabs my hand, my heart leaps. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this is, this is amazing. That 
right away, he's already emotionally attaching with me. This is, this is incredible. I'm ecstatic as I think about the reality that this boy who doesn't really know or understand yet that I'm his daddy is grabbing my hand. We're already so far down the road. This is awesome. And then I realized why he was grabbing my hand. He wasn't grabbing my hand because he felt this deep emotional love for me or affection for me. He was grabbing my hand because he wanted to lead me across the room to this shelf that had toys at the top that he couldn't reach. And I'm 6'2", and he sees me as the big guy who's now in the room who can get me what I really want. And this happened day after day after day. Grab my hand, lead me to the shelf. And he would get to the shelf, and he would say in Russian, that, that, that. I don't remember the Russian word. I should probably go back and look it up. And what he was saying to me, the Lord pressed in deep into my heart. As this happened over and over again, it was as if the Lord was just whispering in the ear of my soul, Jeff, this is exactly what you do with me all the time. You come to me in prayer and you grab my hand, but it's not because you want me. It's because you want me to lead, uh, to, you want to lead me to the shelves of your life so that you can get what you really want. Jeff, I'm a means to an end for you. And I will not tolerate that. I am either the end or I'm nothing at all. And it, might, it reminded me so freshly, what are the toys in my life that I keep taking God to that actually have more, that are more supremely valuable than He is? What does it look like for me to grab His hand in radical dependence and not taking to the shelves. Now, of course, we can ask God for things, but that my heart posture would be you, you, you. I want you. You're my father. You're my king. You're the one for whom my soul longs. Now, think about this. This is how good our God is. He's so patient with us. He's so kind to us. Even though I knew that Samuel didn't really want me, he wanted the toys on the shelf. What did I keep doing? Every day, I went to the shelf with him and I gave him what he wanted. Trusting and hoping that one day he would realize who I am. God does the same thing. Oftentimes, he gives us the desires of our heart. And he's patient with us in doing so, so that we will eventually realize the toys that we keep wanting over the Lord will never give me what only he can. It's Christ and it's Christ alone. Father, thank you. Thank you for the, the reality that in seeking to make disciples, we confess to you that we often don't love you supremely. And there's all kinds of things in our hearts that keep us from longing for you and experiencing you the way you intended us to. The flourishing that you have for us is often missed because we're looking for flourishing somewhere else. So first, Lord, would you forgive us? But secondly, oh God, would you restore us? Would you remind us 
of the beauty of the redemption that we have in you. And as we seek to make disciples, may you bring about your kingdom flourishing in and through us unto your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.